I recently got into the sport of paddle, similar to doubles tennis, uh, but it's a little bit smaller. The court is surrounded by four walls, so I can play, I enjoy it. Uh, and so I recently, of course, naturally entered a tournament in Alhambra uh, with a skilled partner. Uh, I'll not name him, but he's South African. Uh, his name begins with N and ends in Eel. Uh, so we signed up for this competition. There was a 3,000 dirham prize for the winners. And it is possible that my partner and I maybe discuss what we might do with the money if we won. And I definitely lay in bed for at least one night, just imagining what restaurant in town I would be going to if we won. We truly felt we had a chance. Friday arrived. We sent each other videos about tactics. We decided how we would play, who would stand where in the court at different points. And then our first game arrived. And in those first two points, all was forgotten. Tactics disappeared. My ability to return a decent shot just completely gone. My mind was blank. And in all honesty, it was one of the most humbling sporting moments of my entire life. Absolute carnage. My meal at the Lexington Grill just drifted away, as did thoughts of maybe a new paddle racket, and I was just left in a sweaty, horrified mess in the middle of Alhambra. Now, something I left out was that this was my third time ever playing the game. And so with two hours of experience under my belt, my pride so inflated that I thought I had a chance of winning. What a fool. Friends, this is what pride does. It makes us think we are greater than we are. Pride makes us think that we can do whatever we want without consequence. Pride leads to foolish and wrong decisions for our sense of right and wrong is completely blurred. Pride makes us trust in our own strength. Friends, pride can only lead to a fall. Pride and its effects the damage it causes and the futile foolishness and failure that it produces are what we see here in Obadiah today. Have Obadiah in front of you if you don't already. I know it's hard to find, just probably one page in your Bible. But as we come to the smallest book in the Old Testament written by an oracle, written by Obadiah, a man that we don't know much about and at a time that we cannot be completely certain of, Yet he brings, and we see that here, a report from God. Prophecy of what is to come, how God will deal with these people, these Edomites, and how they are relating to God's chosen people here called Jacob or Judah. You may know that these two nations are related. So we read about their beginnings uh, back in Genesis 25, starting just with two brothers. There's a man called Abraham who God gave key promises to for his people, promises to bless him with a people that would include all the nations. Abraham then had a son, Isaac, who you may know he took up the mountain and nearly sacrificed, but God provided uh, a ram and was spared. Well, then we come to Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And these two sons, the Lord says to uh, their mom, Rebekah, 
two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. Well, that's exactly what happens, for God said it. Esau's birthright goes to Jacob. Uh, Jacob is not perfect, but he does receive God's blessing. And then we have enmity between the two brothers. And as the generations pass, that ill feeling just grows and grows. And by the time we see these kind of texts, they are bitter enemies. Both have received new names. Esau becomes Edom and Jacob becomes Israel. And over centuries, we see we see Saul, uh, sorry, Saul fighting Edom. We see uh, David capturing Edom. We then see Edom raiding Judah. This happens just several times uh, back and forth. Uh, if you look at the book of Kings and Chronicles. So really, it's just after centuries, after generations of fighting that we come to this point of, of Obadiah's proclamation. I'd, I, would, I would argue that this is uh, in the post-exile period. And this is happening. It is, I think, sent to encourage the people of God. And all around them is an utter mess. Everything around them is completely destroyed. And I think we see this, and we'll look at these in the references uh, here to Jerusalem in our text. Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem and then took huge numbers of the Israelite people into captivity. And contemporary sources just suggest that it was the Edomites that had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. So as we begin Obadiah, I think the main point uh, of this text, so the main point for our time together is, Christian, no matter how desperate your situation today, God promises to preserve and deliver his people. Christian, no matter how desperate your situation today, God promises to preserve and deliver his people. And in the text, uh, you might have seen that it really splits into two parts. And so we just have two points. And we're going to go with the first one, uh, looking at verses uh, 1 to 14. That first point is pride without reason. Pride without reason. So from the outset uh, of the book, here we're clearly told who it is that brings this message I would argue that the fact that his name is Obadiah is not really a big deal. It's a common name. Could be any of the Obadiahs mentioned in the Old Testament. But we do know that his name means servant of God. And this message that he brings, I think, is more important. And ultimately, I want you to take away the hope and the promises that he is bringing here to the people of God. That is what's key about this message, this hope and these promises to encourage his people. And why are these promises things that we can take hope in? Well, I think the answer is there in verse 1. Look there, it says, This message is the word of the Lord God. He is speaking about Edom and that this message is being declared among the nations. It's God who's speaking. This is the Lord of all the universe here. This is Yahweh himself. We're reminded that he alone is the Lord of all the nations and the Lord of all people. He's not just a Jewish God. He's not just a Western God or a tribal God or a small God or whatever you have in mind when you've arrived here today. We're talking about the one true God that has revealed himself by his word. 
The God of the Bible, the one who has kept his promises, the one who never changes. And I think the one that we see here declared his promises sure because we know that they are from his mouth. This means that it's already done. He has spoken. So for the Israelites, though in their current situation, they have lost everything. Their land, their temple, their possessions, family members. And so this message of hope comes to them, to encourage them. But really, the main subject of the vision here is Edom. It is this people that have been synonymous with the enemies of Israel for centuries. I think really this is due to the the length of the time they've been enemies. This is due to the intensity and the frequency of the conflicts they've had. And how closely these two nations are to one another. Just even the word Edom, the mention of this other nation would have been a negative. You know, in your tribe or your country, there's probably uh, something similar, a rival nation or a neighboring tribe. I think we know similar situations in the news even right now. The message from God begins there with those speech marks in verse 1. And God is showing that he will use everything within his control. That is all peoples, that is all resources, Everything at his disposal to pour out thick and fast his judgment on the people of Edom. Look at verses 2 to 4. This then continues as God's opening remarks to Edom highlight their pride. This first point sees God highlighting his judgment on Edom, especially on their pride. Just watches every aspect of their view of themselves is turned on its head and everything they have done to others promised against them in return. This tiny nation, so small, so insignificant, blinded by its own pride. We see there that they will be made small among the nations and it shall be utterly despised. We will look more at what they have done as God is going to lay out for us Uh, all of it here, but make no mistake, there is a humbling coming. I think we immediately ask the question, why? Verse 3 there begins to explain that for us. The Edomites think of themselves as great, as strong, as cunning. Yet we see that they have no reason to think this. Pride here again shown to do what it does best. Text says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride has deceived you. For the Edomites, they have put their trust in their position, how highly they view themselves, their own achievements, what they have done, what they have accumulated. There were people whose lives centered around uh, modern day Israel and Jordan especially the city of Sela or Petra, as you might know it. The word Sela just means rock. And Obadiah just including a little pun there for us in verse 3. Who live in the cleft of the rock. Rock and Sela are just that same word in Hebrew. What we know, if you've seen pictures of Petra, is that it's tucked away in the mountains. 
through steep gorges, hard to reach even today. Perfect for hiding riches you've stolen for other people. Perfect for watching other armies approaching and hiding away in caves and crevices. It was a great and strategic location. A lofty dwelling like few others. God reminds them clearly, it's not all that. Nothing can hide them from the hand of God. Don't miss how twice here in our text we see that their heart is referenced. Friends, in the heart, that is where pride is prepared. That is where pride takes root. And that is where pride says, I deserve more. I'm, I'm better than all of this. I am enough. This is the same pride, friends, that in the garden said, I want to be like God. I'll eat whatever I want to eat. This is the same Pride that thinks that you can save yourself if you work hard enough, earn enough money, a particular nice guy or girl. Pride that sees itself as a soaring eagle, says that whose nest is among the stars. Perhaps you're left thinking this morning, how dare a pastor or someone else tell me that I'm not good enough, tell me that I am sinful. Or that I need a savior. What are you talking about? Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're horrified by this. You've never heard of this before. What about you, Christian, before you scoff at your colleague or your neighbor? This is, friends, the situation that every person here finds ourselves in. Edom, sadly, is a terrible picture of all people, of me. And of you. Should not be lost on us that in the the Hebrew, the word Edom uses the exact same letters as the word Adam, meaning humanity. This picture for us is clear. This tale of Edom is a parable for all people. Not just an enemy of Israel, but an enemy of God. Friends, this is you. This is how we live our lives without God. We have placed our trust elsewhere. And if you're not a a Christian here today, then really you need to listen up. What God is about to declare here to Edom, his judgment that he has promised to pour out on all his enemies. Friends, Edom, like you this morning, has been given a warning. Look there at verse four in the text. God is promising to bring you down. From that lofty perch you have wrongly placed yourself on. This is the God of the universe. His power knows no end. His strength is unimaginable. His might beyond any army or superpower that you might fear or read about in the news. Friends, nothing is too great for God to overcome. Hear this warning today. I beg you, all those that don't trust God, we'll look more at how God has promised to send a savior and a king in Jesus Christ. But anyone, make no mistake, anyone that does not trust and follow him is an enemy of God. This is how you were born in your sin and your rejection. And friends, the consequences are severe. The punishment is death for your sin. This is why Christ had to come to take 
the punishment that each of us deserve and to die in your place. God makes it clear for us here over and over again to take pride in yourself is to hate and reject God. No one is neutral before him. Verses 5 and 6, we then uh, begin to get a picture, I think, of the severity of this judgment with these two contrasts. We see there that so serious will be the judgment of God that, that thieves or uh, those who come to pick graves, uh, to pick grapes, sorry, their work will be like nothing compared to God. Thieves at least leave something behind. They pick what's valuable, and those who are picking grapes, they, you know what I mean? they take the big ones, they leave the little ones behind. Terrifyingly, not God. The destruction of Edom will be so severe that there will be nothing left. We hear Obadiah shocked aside there in verse 5. Look there, he says, How have you been destroyed? How have you been destroyed? This is the perfect tense, said as though it's already happened. God has said it, and so it is sure, and it is complete. It might as well already have happened in Obadiah's mind. Over and over again, we'll see what Edom has done, so it will be done to Edom. Now, as a people, they have plundered, uh, they have Pillaged, which just means violently taken something uh, from someone else. And then they've rested in their houses. They've trusted in their possessions and their position. They've trusted in everything apart from God. I wonder about you this morning. What hidden treasures do you trust in? What have you got tucked away in your mind and in your heart, uh, even in a drawer somewhere that you secretly cling to when things are difficult? Now, for some, it's a person or persons. Perhaps you're a mom, and when uh, things are difficult, you just stop and you look at your children and uh, you focus on them. In them, you see your hopes and your dreams that if you can just work hard and uh, then things won't be as hard for them as they were for you. Perhaps it's your wedding day. Perhaps it's a day that you long for, a day that you imagine. That, well, that if you can just walk down the aisle, if you can just have that ring on your finger, then everything will be okay. Maybe it's that bottle of wine that you look forward to at the end of the week. If I can just get through another meeting, another shift, another class, and that glass will be waiting for me, and all will be forgotten. Family, marriage, wine, all great things, all good gifts from God. Friends, not things that can bear the weight of our hope, not things that will stand the test. And not things that will bring through satisfaction. For the Israelites, and perhaps in your lifetime, some of these things, maybe all of those things, will be taken away by God and His sovereignty. Where is it that your hope is placed? Is it in the things of this world? Where do you run to when things are hard? Consider that this week. Because nothing happens outside of God's control. 
What a wonderful and heartbreaking example we've seen this week in Caleb and Karen. I pray that in the face of the worst hardship, you too will be able to sing what is our hope in life and death. Christ alone. Christ alone. Friends, verses 7, 8, and 9 all highlight that God is sure to do his judgment. It will be complete. It will be all-encompassing, going further and deeper than we like to acknowledge, as God's judgment always does. All that Edom has trusted will fall away. Its relationships, uh, its covenants with other countries, the, its wisdom, uh, its good leaders, the removal of all military might, and ultimately all people gone. Utter devastation. And in verses 8 and 9, we see uh, Mount Esau used instead of Edom. And that day mentioned, as the comparison is prepared between God's kingdom and all those that stand against him. We'll see how only in the Mount of Zion is refuge found. Friends, I need you to understand that to stand on your own hill will only result in death. Every enemy of God we see there cut off by slaughter. This judgment day, that day is coming. That day is certain. It's hard to read this. It's hard to study this all week. But this judgment of God, it is final. It is complete. Nothing and no one beyond his gaze, for everything is in his control. And for the good of his people, we'll see that he will remove his enemies. He will humble the proud. He will weaken the strong. And he will defend the poor, all for his glory and all for his purposes. And for the Christian here today, this should be a great encouragement. If you don't follow Christ and you are here today, then this should be terrifying. Verses 10 to 14, we then see the accusations start to fly against Edom. They're coming thick and fast as their violence from one brother to another is described. This has made all the worse because of this relationship that they have. Look at the language there. Violence, verse 10. Misfortune, ruin, distress, verse 12. Calamity, twice. And then disaster, verse 13. Distress again, in four, verse 14. Friends, to despise and to treat God's people this way brings his wrath. Christian, no matter what you see in the wider world, all the things mentioned here, persecution, looting, gloating, boasting in sin, all of these products of pride. Case against the Edomites is clear. Their pride has led to their selfishness and their selfishness has led to their cruelty towards God and towards his people. Their own hearts have ruled the day. They have gone against all that God has designed. I think what we see here is really just a going against all that is right and expected in human nature. This is why even today 
We have rules of war. We expect the innocent to be protected. We expect sympathy and not gloating at the death of children or the destruction of a city. We expect those fleeing conflict to be given safe passage. And we expect brothers to care for one another regardless of the disagreement. Yet we see here laid out for us all of these things Edom did not do. They have looted. They have robbed. They have killed. We see that word rejoice. They have rejoiced in it all. There is nowhere to hide from their sin. We reach this point. Their pockets are full of spoils. Their stomachs full of the food. Their hearts full of contempt and pride. Friends, how often does each of us, blinded by our own pride, think that we too can sneak around in our sin and imagine that there is freedom to be found in our folly? Without Christ, without the mercy offered by God, we too have climbed to the very top of a mountain of pride. A mountain that stands in direct opposition to the mountain of promise that the Lord shall reign from. Mountain that begins with the cross of Christ on which he hung. Without him, we have no hope. Without him, we are without merit before God on judgment day. We stand in our own strength without Christ. This leads us to our second point. There in verses 15 to 21. Righteous without merit. Righteous without merit. The central verse of the book of Obadiah, I think, begins our second point and gives us both this final warning to Edom and the ground for the hope of the Israelites. It is the coming day of judgment. That is, and it says there, the day of the Lord. It's not a maybe or a possibility, but a certain day. In this section, we see the judgment of God, I think, here from two perspectives, two kind of views of the same thing. Uh, verses 15 to 18, uh, showing the negative, negative, and then verses 19 to 21, uh, giving us uh, this positive view. For make no mistake, friends, all people will experience this day. All people. Notice in verse 15, the shift now includes in this vision for all nations. This judgment now declared to all people and all nations, warranted by the words, your deeds shall return on your own head. Jesus himself picks up the same idea when he says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measure to you. There in Matthew 7. We've heard that None of us will escape this, and it should be a terrifying thought. God hands people over to their sin. We know this. And eventually they will receive the desires of their hearts. For those that, as verse 16 says, those who drank on my holy hill, they will drink and drink until they can drink no more. Having 
plundered the wine from still smoking towns and villages. The enemies of God, they revel and rejoice in their just rewards. They're sipping on their spoils. They're hammered on his holy hill. Proud as punch and drinking here, we see their own destruction. Friends, relentless is the cup of wrath, a taste that no man can handle. Yet be sure, there is one to come, one who came, one without sin, one without pride, one so holy that all will bow before him from every tongue, from every tribe, every nation. Friends, this cup of wrath that is yours, this cup that you have filled, we know Jesus Christ has come and he has taken it. In your excess and your pride that you have rejected him. Yet we read in Luke 22, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And no one can escape this cup of wrath. You either drink it yourself in destruction, or you see and you recognize that Jesus Christ has already taken it from your dirty hands, taking the judgment and the punishment that you deserve there upon the cross, declaring that it is finished. He rose there on the third day and he ascended to heaven. His victory over death is complete. Christian, this is what he has already done for you. What a hope we have. Drink deeply on Christ. As he says in John 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Trust Christ is to know life. Friends, to reject him is to drink death. To know Christ is to know life. To reject him is to drink death. If you don't know Christ, then I urge you to consider your sin. Consider the punishment that you deserve today. To drink it yourself will only, as we see there in verse 16, be as if they never had been. It's utterly hopeless. Back here in our verses, we see it continues in Mount Zion. There shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. God's mountain, it's different. God's people are different. They are a holy people. We see here that God clearly knows who his people are. See that he has chosen a people for himself and through the promises to Abraham and then fulfilled in Christ, we know that all the nations are included. You only have to get a look around this hall this morning to get a glimpse of that truth. People from all tribes and tongues and nations brought in together. A unity that the world does not understand. Yet to the Israelites hearing this prophecy and to the Edomites that would experience this judgment, there were true and real geographical and physical implications. 
that we see are delivered and fulfilled in a way that we no longer need to look to. In very real terms, we see in history that the Edomites would be wiped from the face of the earth. It's not a country you're going to hear about in the news. Uh, It's not a country that's coming back. Their leaders are gone. Their spoils dispersed. Their reputation and their situation irreversible. Verse 18 tells us how this will happen at the hands of Jacob and Joseph. And we know there from other texts that uh, fire and flame are often used as, as great images of God's judgment in the Old Testament. And here is no different. There shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. This message is delivered with a clear guarantee at the end of verse 18. All of this will happen as it is written. And why? It says there, for the Lord has spoken. Thankfully, God's judgment alone is not his final word, and we see that deliverance is promised at the end of Obadiah. Following on from the promises of Joel 2 that says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. And then right before this, in Amos 9, they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. I think we see here that the book of Obadiah is placed here to to further build on this hope of God's nation being established over a new Jerusalem and all nations. After their exile, there is hope for Israel. We know this is to be proved to be true. So hearing this in this, uh, I think, post-exilic community would have seemed a stretch for them to hear. A situation so dire, yet Obadiah so faithful to deliver this message of hope. You will one day be a people again that though you are now dispersed, will be reunited. will have lands like you did not before. God's kingdom will increase. Obadiah is encouraging the people to hold on encouraging them to cling to the Lord and his promises, for he has proven faithful to you and to your fathers. Friends, it's the same for us. Edom was destroyed, and the people did once again possess their possessions. It's meaning they got back what was theirs. And though through the establishment of judges and kings and prophets, We then see how those various saviors mentioned there have gone up to Mount Zion and to rule Mount Esau, establishing the kingdom there, as verse 21 says. Really, all of these things, all pointing forward, all anticipating the arrival of the one true king, the only Lord and the only savior, Jesus Christ. You must make no mistake that it is his kingdom the one whom the heavens declare like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. The one who in righteousness he judges and makes war. The one who again will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. And the only one that can be named King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, this is 
Jesus Christ. This is your Lord. He has brought about his kingdom and he has paid for his people with his own precious blood. Here today in his church, we see his chosen people and his kingdom graciously extending to the nations, not a land Not anymore, but a redeemed people, a living temple, his bride, his church. Key part of living for Christ today, living lives that honor him in humility and not pride, is living amongst God's people. It's being part of a church. This humility looks like formally joining and submitting yourself to other believers. Hence, this humility involves discipleship, membership, accountability. It's doing life with one another. It is seeing that you cannot do this, cannot do this Christian life on your own. It's acknowledging what God has provided for the benefit of his people. It is in and through a local church that we see these means of grace that God has provided for his people, their safety their security, and also the primary vehicle for the moving forward and the going out of the gospel. Don't dismiss it. Don't think you know better. Don't just live in your own fortress and not in the care of God. This will always, friends, be a dangerous position to be in. Let me conclude with this reminder. Jesus has passed through a death that you could not survive. He has drunk a cup that you could not bear. He has paid a price that you could not pay. He has given you a righteousness that you do not deserve. No matter what today holds, no matter how hard your yesterday or your tomorrow, if you call on his name, then you will be saved and you are his forevermore. Held, loved, Safe, secure. Friends, cling to your king.